Man, I love our times together journeying through the gospel of John, but I think one of the things that, that in my mind anyway, that makes it difficult is it's every other month kind of reestablishing the setting. And so it seems somewhat repetitive in my mind, but then I remember that if you miss Lord's Supper, then it's been you know, a good three months since, since you've heard, and, and that things don't stay as uh, fresh in your mind because you're not the one having to work on this. That's, that's me. And so I, I just want to kind of remind you of where we are in the setting and all those things that are taking place so that John 14 makes sense, okay? So we get into John chapter 13, and Jesus washes the disciples' feet, which should certainly have been a scandalous act for him to endeavor. And so you have this teacher who's there, and he comes to his students, and he does something that completely violates their sense of propriety, their sense of social, uh, kind of socially approved practices. You don't touch other people's feet. You can't command a servant to do that. And so for Jesus to do that, to lower himself to do that, is a supreme example and display of love and a call for radical service to the disciples. And so they begin to see this. Jesus also in this time moves and he begins to talk that one of their number, one of them is going to betray him. And we know this to be Judas. And and what you find is that in uh, John 13 and verse 21, Jesus says, and after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus himself is vexed. Jesus himself is saddened. He's got this group of men that he spent the last three years, the better part of the last three years traveling around with, and one of them is going to betray him. Now, this didn't catch him unaware, but nevertheless, as he's poured out his life and invested in the life of this man, knowing his betrayal, it causes him grief. So they go on through this, and, and, and they're moving along, and then Peter has this kind of bold profession uh, that he's going to go wherever Jesus goes, and, and even after the point of death, and Peter's never going to bail on him, and Jesus turns and he says, even you will deny me. For the crow cries three times, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me three times. So this is the room. This is the room where they're, they're gathered and they've washed feet and they've taken the Passover meal together. This is the room where they've seen Judas get up and walk out and they've heard Peter in this bold profession that I'm going to go with you. And Jesus turns to him and says, before the rooster cries, you're going to deny me three times. This is the room. So you can cast your mind there. You can be in that room and you can feel the sense of overwhelming and foreboding. Something's not right in this room. Something's not right with our teacher. Something's not right with what he's saying to us. This feeling that I just, there's, there's a tension in the room. So Jesus looks out and he, he catches their eyes. He looks at Matthew and he looks at Peter and he looks at John. And he looks around the room And look what he says to them. He says, let not your heart be troubled. I don't know where you are this morning. You came in here and you have any number of things going on in your life. Your spouse has left you. You have left your spouse. Your children have turned against you. You've lost your job. You're losing your home. And so to see the words of Jesus sting 
Because you're in the midst of this and you say, look, my pain is more real than your words. My pain is stronger than your call to leave it. So how could you come to me in honesty, in proclamation, and tell me that my heart should not be troubled? Because that's the only thing I'm holding on to is the trouble, trouble nature of my heart. So we hear that from Jesus and our temptation is to think that Jesus is especially difficult, that he's unyielding, that he's, he's being unnecessarily difficult with these men. I want you to understand something in the midst of your turmoil and pain this morning. When Jesus calls you to come out of it, when he says, don't let this best you, don't let this rule over you, don't let this be master over you, he does so as a sovereign Lord of the universe. He's not some impotent friend of yours coming and offering a platitude and saying things are going to get better. He's the sovereign, all-knowing Lord of the universe who speaks with wisdom and accuracy to your heart. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. And he doesn't base it on some pie-in-the-sky dream that your life's going to turn around magically, that your wife's going to come back home, that you're going to return to her, that your kids are going to gather around you once more, and that all the mistakes you made in your past, nobody's going to count against you. He's not basing it on things of, of, of falsehood that lack substance and reality. He bases them on who he is. Let not your heart be troubled. And then he calls them to believe see that Jesus steps in the midst of our muck and the mire of our lives he says let not your heart be troubled why believe in God believe also in me he pairs their belief in God this sovereign creator God who spun everything into existence with himself and he draws a parody there he says believe in him believe also in me and then he gives them this impossibly misunderstood metaphor there in verse 2 he says, in my father's house are many rooms. And so some of us have grown up with the King James version of the Bible, or we've heard it said over and over again, and the King James renders the word, their rooms, as mansions. And so we've created on ourselves and in our minds this sense that when we die, there's a mansion waiting for us in glory, and there's a bass boat parked out on the lake, and nobody bothers us there. We recognize, of course, this is the American dream making its way, way into a heavenly reality, and it has no basis in fact or existence. The picture that he paints for us there, he says, in my father's house are many rooms, is a metaphor meant to paint the picture that in heaven there is room for all who would come to Jesus. That there is room and then some for all those who would give their heart to him. And as we said repeatedly this morning, who would follow out living lives of obedience unto Jesus. So he paints this picture of this, this intimate setting. He says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And look at what he says. He says, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? In essence, Jesus is saying, look, you need to understand there's room for all of us. There is a place for us with God. And, and you have to understand that this is true. And why? Because I'm telling you that I go to prepare a place for you. In essence, Jesus is saying, look, trust the veracity of what I say. Trust the truthfulness of what I tell you. I am going to prepare a place for you. In essence, you can know that there is a place for you because I'm telling you that I'm going to establish one and to make one ready for you. 
So the question begins to roll over and over again in our minds. What is Jesus on about? What is he saying and where is he going? And, and what does it look like to make way? And what does it look like to prepare? And so we begin, and, and I think quite innocently so, to, to sing and to imagine, okay, apparently heaven is in disrepair, and Jesus is going there, and he's on some type of capital improvement campaign, and he's going to make our rooms ready for us. And so we kind of construct this image in our mind that says Jesus rolls into heaven, and he says, look, Dad, uh, i got a whole host of people that are coming with me, and really love what you've done with the place, but we need more rooms. We need to push that wall out. We need a beam in here and we need a whole host of chocolate mints because a pillow is not complete unless it has a mint on it and some shower caps. We have ladies that are rather particular. So we begin to kind of craft this, this narrative that has no place in this text. That just has no place in our understanding of what Jesus is describing and what he's on about and, and the mission that he has set before him. But he says, in verse 3, and I go and prepare a place for you. And I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. So the question rolls in our mind. What is he describing? Where is Jesus going? You see the mistake is that we're thinking about a destination not a process. Our minds jump to heaven. We jump to the destination, not the process. But look carefully at what Jesus says here. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. The way Jesus does this. It's not a journey. It's not a trip to heaven to get everything in order and everything in line. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is by being betrayed. It's by having a man that followed him for three years turn against him. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is by being arrested, by gathering in the garden with his disciples and pleading and crying for them and pouring out his life in this horde of men come to him with clubs and torches. The way he prepares a place for us is being led away in the dark of night. By being taken from place to place in a ramshackle trial, by being spit on, by being mocked, by being slapped, by having the flesh torn from his body. The way Jesus makes a place for us is that we have Jesus here and we have this criminal against Rome on the other side and the people prefer him to be released than Jesus. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is that Peter, the stalwart of the faith, would turn against him three times and deny him. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is by taking a crown of thorns shoved down upon his head as the blood came down his face. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is by taking upon his cross and carrying it up the hill towards Golgotha. The way Jesus prepares a place for us is allowing the nails to be driven into his wrists, allowing the nails to be driven into his ankles, and then being hoisted up in the air as the cross is dropped into the ground. This is how he prepares a place for us. 
and hanging upon that cross and struggling for breath and crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And succumbing to fatigue and succumbing to abuse and surrendering up his life. This is how Jesus makes a way for us. If I can be brought down and entered into a borrowed tomb, this is how we see Jesus making a way for us. By the power of God at work in him, being resurrected by the power of God and coming back into fullness of life and destroying forever the bonds of sin and death, this is how he makes a way for us. He's not going to heaven. It's not going in and setting things in order. The way he makes for us is always through his cross. So that he might be able to come back at some point and take them to be with himself. We recognize that he has overcome sin and death in the grave and he is coming back for us again. So Thomas responds to what Jesus said in verse 4. Look at what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. So he's describing this to the disciples. He says, you know the way to where I'm going. And you can see it almost. They look around the room. And Thomas asks the question, which is at the heart of everyone in there. And it's an honest question. He's not being obtuse. He's not being difficult. He asks the question that all of us would long to have answered. Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you are going. And then he follows up. He says, how can we know the way? Jesus has spoken repeatedly that he's going to go prepare a place for them. And then he tells them, but you all know the way. And what is Thomas' response? He, he breaks it into two things that they have no idea what Jesus is talking about. He says, we know neither the location nor the route. We know neither the location. We don't know the ultimacy of what you're talking about. We don't know the route. We can't possibly get there because we don't know where it is. And furthermore, we couldn't know how to get there. You haven't told us where you're going. How can we possibly know the way to get there? So nestled within this is the verse that so many of us have memorized. I can't possibly know how to get there because you haven't told us where you're going. And what is Jesus' response? He says, I am the way. That's the answer to Thomas's question. Thomas, in essence, wants to know, where are you going and how do we get there? And what's Jesus' response? I am the way. Jesus reveals himself to be the way to the Father. Jesus reveals himself to be the one worthy of following. Jesus reveals himself to be the way to get to God. So Thomas's question of where are you going, and if we knew where you were going, then we could find out the way, reveals Jesus to be the only way. So Jesus' words to him, he says, I am the way. And then he follows it up with these two descriptors. In essence, he says, I am the way by virtue of the fact that I 
am the truth. And I am the way by virtue of the fact that I am the life. Jesus speaking earlier in John, in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. He's speaking to a group of Jews who had believed in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So if you remain, if you reside, if you make your home in my word, then you are my disciples. Look at what he says. He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you know Jesus, the way, you know him by virtue of the fact that he is the truth. And knowing this true thing and knowing him who is the truth, the embodiment of all true and good things, leads you to the way. It leads you to the Father. We recognize Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and we also recognize that he is the life. In John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus said these words. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Jesus gives this amazing teaching here. He comes into these group of guys, they just want to know how to continue to follow Jesus. They just want to know that wherever he's going, they can get there as well. And what does he tell them? He said, you know, because I am the way. And as he, in essence, he invites them into a deeper relationship with himself, not recognizing there's some location they have to travel to, but recognizing there is a person that they have to follow, that they have to know, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the way. By virtue of the fact that he's the truth, and Jesus is the way by virtue of the fact that he's the life. I want you to look at something. We get into this, and there's a couple of things that we need to recognize. One, Jesus never said, I am one of the ways, and he never said, I'm a better way. He's not pointing at, he's one of many different possibilities. He's not pointing at, in terms of pragmatism, I am better than other ways. He says, I am the way. And we recognize this on the heels of what he said, because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know where many of you are this morning. I don't know where you are in your sense of justifying yourself before God. I don't know if maybe this morning you say that, look, my, my wife says I'm a pretty solid guy, or my husband says I'm a, I'm a pretty swell lady. Or, or people like me, they say nice things about me, or I, look, I haven't angered anyone significantly. I live a quiet, I live a peaceable life, and I think God's just going to be okay with that. I'm a good person. There's no amount of being well-liked. There's no amount of people being at peace with you. There's no amount of goodness that gets you to the Father. The Bible paints it in this really narrow way. It says that each of us, you and me, each of us have sin in our lives. We have all, you and me, violated God's character and God's law. And because we've done this, we face a coming death 
and a coming penalty and a punishment. And this is right and this is true. This penalty and this punishment is coming for all of us. There's no way around it. There's no way to excuse it. There's no way to get a VIP pass to the backstage where all the righteous people are. The only way to atone for sin, to take care of this issue that doesn't end up with you forever separated from the love of God in hell, the only way is through the one who described himself as the way. It's through his cross. So Jesus stands ready to forgive. Jesus stands ready to take on the pain and the penalty and the punishment for your sin, just as he's taken that on for my sin, so that you might know the Father, so that you might dwell with him in eternity, so that you might be forgiven. And that's what we will proclaim in the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is this really odd thing where Christians gather together. We reflect on his body that was broken for us. We reflect upon his blood that was poured out for us. And we express our thankfulness to God in that moment. As we take the bread, as we take the cup, we're just thankful that God has not left us on our own to atone for our sin, but he sent Jesus to be the sacrifice on our behalf so that our sin might be atoned for, paid for, and taken care of. And in that place, we look forward to his coming. We look forward to his return. It is we read about in John 14 that where he is, we may be also.